This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This show is one day late this week. I apologize, but I hope you enjoy it. Since the last episode aired, I was able to attend the Wild Goose Festival for the first time and got to meet many of my fellow Irreverent Media Group podcasters in person, including Sarah Heath, Josie Jimenez, Anna Galladay and Robin Henderson Espinoza, Mason Menenga, and Kevin Garcia. I haven't met everyone in IRL yet, but I hope to. Be sure to follow IMG over on Instagram at irreverent underscore FM to keep up with all of the podcasters that are part of Irreverent. Before I jumped on a plane to head from Illinois to North Carolina, though, I spoke with Peterson Toscano all the way in South Africa. This is a shorter conversation, but we cover a lot of interesting ground. Peterson has been working in activist spaces for 20 years, including talking about his experience in ex-gay therapy. He has some very wise things to say about recognizing when staying in a particular activist space begins to harm us, and when to move on to something else. I hope you enjoy this conversation and seek out some of Peterson's other work. You can keep up with my work by subscribing to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.substack.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at brchastain and at brchastain on Instagram. If you have any comments or feedback, you can email me at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com. All right, let's get into it. My guest today is Peterson Toscano. Peterson is a podcaster, performer, climate activist, and biblical scholar. Peterson, welcome back to the show. Blake, it's really great to be here. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming back on. Uh, Thank you for making time. We are actually talking across some oceans. I thought my relocation to the suburbs was big, but you've got me beat by several orders of magnitude. (laughs) Yeah, moving to South Africa in a pandemic was... It was like a hero's journey. I felt like we were in a massive video game and every we had to go through every level. <laughs> yeah, that it has to have been quite a journey. And, uh, and I'm really glad that we're able to connect it across these divides. And I really hope that w- when this is published that we have some uh, <laughs> good quality audio for our listeners. What I actually wanted to touch base with you on, uh, we spoke several uh, years ago now, when I was just starting out as a podcaster, about your story. I think it was around episode 30, 33, something like that in the feed. Um, and I re-released it uh, a little bit ago as well. And you talked about your own personal story within that first conversation we had. And we've stayed in contact since then. We were able to grab a drink together back in 2019 in the before times <laughs> when you were in my area. And part of your story also touches on some of the things that are back in the news or at least within our sort of part of the internet and our part of public discourse, which is uh, recently Netflix released a documentary in June called Pray Away 
uh, which explores the topic of conversion therapy and focuses on the leaders of Exodus International and the the impact of its ministry. My friend Kevin Garcia and other queer commentators have wisely said that this documentary actually isn't one that needs to be watched by people who've experienced this sort of harm through conversion therapy, and I agree with that. And I know you, when we were first talking before I started recording, uh, you said you haven't watched the film, and we'll actually talk about why. But I wanted to talk to you again because you've played such a public role in the past in talking about this through your work for a long time. So I wonder if we should maybe start there and summarize some of the ways you've previously talked about these issues with different audiences, including speaking back and talking and dialoguing with evangelical audiences and your work around this topic. What's fascinating about this question you're asking me now, my move to South Africa feels like a move back in time as well, because South Africa, in many ways, in the evangelical church among white Afrikaners in particular, is where the U.S. was in about 2002. Mm. And these XK programs, some of them, once they shut down in America, they came here. So I am doing silly TikToks, and I will just drop here and there that I was in conversion therapy and all. People are contacting me needing to talk because this is an issue here today like it was Mm. back in 2003 when I first started what I did. And back in 2003, it was basically I had a story to tell. I had spent 17 years in conversion therapy, including two years at the Notorious Love and Action Program. I Mm -hmm. knew it was a story that needed to get out there because most people didn't know about it at that time. And if they did know about it, they just, they had it wrong. They thought, oh, this is just stupid. Why would you do this? It doesn't work. Which, yes, it's true, but people needed to know more. Also, activists who took this on were very passionate about it and did a great job of speaking out, but they didn't experience it themselves. So they had the message a little bit wrong. Like they kept on mm-hmm. saying to these ex-gay leaders, you hate gay people. And they would come back and say, no, no, we love gay people. And it was this disconnect because in their minds, they did love gay people. And so there was a, there was like a bit of a standstill. In 2003, I premiered my play, Doing Time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House, How I Survived the Ex-Gay Movement. And it was a way to use comedy to get people closer to the story, particularly open and affirming churches who were opening their doors to LGBTQ folks who were coming as refugees. And they, I think they needed mm-hmm. to know the trauma that we were experiencing. And we needed to have a public witness about this madness of conversion therapy that in the 90s in particular really grew robust uh, and into the uh, early noughties. So... It all started with a show, and then this was at the very beginning of that social media movement with LiveJournal and MySpace. I mean, these are like back mm-hmm. in the days YouTube had just started. <laughs> and that new media gave us an opportunity to tell our stories on our own terms. Because when we told them to the press, they switched them around a bit and sensationalized them in ways that weren't always helpful. And by 2007, we launched the ex-gay survivors movement. We launched a website, beyondxgay.com, which is still out there where you can see lots of information of what we did through those years. We did 
national activism by speaking directly to conversion therapy places and telling them about the harm that we did. We brought artwork, collages, huge collages of our own personal stories. We brought to the headquarters of Exodus and every major ministry in America, this was around 2007, 2008, and we said, I know you loved us, you felt you loved us, but you actually did us great harm, and this is what that harm looked like. It was Hmm. very powerful because they didn't have a response to it. Because whenever they were told this doesn't work, their response was, it does work because of my testimony. And they would rely on their testimony and say, you can't say that I'm not telling the truth. So we said, okay, let's tell you our testimony. We went to you for help and we walked away just destroyed emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, even physically. Our lives were ruined and that's not what you intended. That message had a resonance that really went deep. And and in speaking with these folks face-to-face, sometimes they got very angry. Sometimes they got very defensive. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they got really rude. But other times you can tell those that really cared about people, this hit them in a different place. By around 2008, 2009, we really were winding up a lot of what we were doing with the XK Survivor Movement. And it was time for me to move on because I've learned that with activism, particularly if you are traumatized, it can become re-traumatizing to stay in that story over and over again. Plus, I had hopes that the XK movement was going to end so I wouldn't have to do this for the rest of my life. There were other issues to deal with, in particular transphobia within the LGBT community, particularly Mm -hmm. among cisgender gays and lesbians. And that's when I turned to Bible scholarship. I did a play called Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible, began to talk about non-binary issues and trans issues uh, in a different way as an ally to, to really try to connect with my people who were being hostile towards trans people in a way that Mm -hmm. was just so wrong. And then in 2012, I moved on to climate work to look at climate change as a queer issue in lots of different ways. But through all that, I have to say, I've been able to talk about conversion therapy because there always were ties to that. And I don't think we should ever divorce ourselves completely from our stories because those stories have power, but it is about how we tell them and we may need to tell them in new ways. Yeah. You've said a a lot there. And what I would actually like to start with is what you said there near the end, which was that there were times when your work needed to change. You needed to hand over this work to someone else. And I think there's a handful of things that that play into this, um, I guess, cultural sort of importance here in the United States. It feels like it's global at this point of obsession with youth. Our media environment has such turnover and obsession with the now that we often forget or are just completely oblivious to the work done by people that precede them. I, I was wondering if you could speak to that and like how you doing this work in the early 2000s up until the close of that first uh, decade of this century and then moving on to another aspect of your activist work. How have you seen that? And even as Uh, an observer of the way these sorts of things have changed and the ways in which another group of activists or creators 
engage with these really vital issues. And unfortunately, the movement still needs to be addressed, but it doesn't necessarily need to be addressed by you because it's no longer healthy for you. And also, my story isn't as relevant as it once was. I was in the conversion therapy movement when it was really at its height, when they had residential programs. They've changed strategies. They are doing things differently. And we need people who have had those experiences to step up. Also, if I'm always in that place of the person that the media calls when it's time to talk about conversion therapy then there's no space for other people to step up. And and sometimes, I remember in 2008, I was concerned about this because in, in a way I was like the person who was often talking about this more than anybody else. And I was skilled and I had all my talking points down and I was able to you know, navigate the media. And I recognized that moment, I may have been one of the best people to do it, but how would anyone ever get good at it if I didn't stop? We mm-hmm. got to make room for other people. And and so part of it was I didn't want to traumatize myself more, but also I, I wanted to see what other people could do. And I also knew I needed to take on new issues, that I need to take the skills that I learned in that activism and apply it in another direction. And I think sometimes people, for right or wrong, they feel really committed to an issue And they feel if they walk away, that they are somehow failing the movement. Mm -hmm. And that's a trap because we have to recognize that we can make a contribution and then our contribution's done. And and then it's time to move on and let other people make their contribution. And that was really important. What I'm so grateful in seeing in younger people taking on conversion therapy is the big shift has been about gender. In a way, it always was about gender. And and this was the dirty Mm -hmm. secret. Conversion therapy had very little to do with what we did with our genitals and sex, but it almost always had to do with gender roles and masculinity Mm -hmm. and femininity. Uh, And so it was no surprise that when the, the trans movement became more visible, that the tactic shifted and the number one targets now are trans people, young trans people, and non-binary people. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. the, and it's important that folks like me stand behind that movement and, and support as we can. But it's particularly important that people can speak to those issues from their own experiences are part of the discussion and not having some older white gay cis dude doing it on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that in mind, like this, we're both cis white guys. There was this experience that I that I had where I was in a training where an, where another older cis white man who was gay uh, was talking about his own experience in the gay community in the eighties. And one of the things that that he got very emotional and he was talking about all the loss that was experienced in the community at that time because of the AIDS uh, epidemic, what sort of became really, really tangible in that moment was the way in which sometimes those stories, those connections, because uh, as you said earlier, like stories are powerful and they, a lot of times if they don't speak to the present moment, then they may lose some of their influence in, in places like the media, which is so consumed with the present moment. I, I feel like you always had this awareness about your own work and your role and what is beneficial and what may be a hindrance if you take up too much space. I think you're very magnanimous in that regard. How can 
people who are involved in any sort of activism, as they're involved, as their place or their presence either gets larger or closer or more distant from the most pressing things in those spaces. How can, is there a way in which, with all of that in mind, we can still be able to make those, I, I, I don't know whether the correct term is something like intergenerational type of connection in order to draw on your wisdom, on your knowledge, on, on those sorts of things and allow there to be a sort of dialogue there, even amongst people that have similar goals. Because a lot of times online discourse can devolve into generational crap like boomers boomers talking down to millennials and vice versa and gen xers just not caring and gen z they have tiktok now too and so it's all a mess how can we keep all of that in mind but also learn from one another i think we all need to be curious right about each Mm -hmm. other and so for older lgbtq folks i think part of it is about that curiosity about this younger generation. And yeah, it's different. It's, it's in some ways, it's alien. It's just like a different world. It's so funny how it has changed so quickly. And, uh, and I think one thing is to become curious about it and, and not try to make sense of it necessarily, but just see it, experience it in, in whatever ways you can. It might be going to an LGBTQ film festival and going to a film that you wouldn't normally have gone to. Supporting a film about non-binary folks or trans folks, something that's different from your experience, I, I think you know, that's one thing that one can do. What's great about social media and the internet is there's so much out there. It's so much, it's so much easier to go back in time and learn from our elders. When I mm. started doing climate work, there was part of me that just felt the need to travel back in time and to learn from those AIDS activists about how they dealt with this existential crisis of AIDS, particularly at a time when the government could care less or even wouldn't even acknowledge there was a problem. It felt very much like climate change. And I thought, Mm. maybe they've got some lessons to teach me. So I think that's also another kind of curiosity that younger activists can have is to ask that question, like, there's nothing new under the sun. This is not our first rodeo. Is there something that our Mm -hmm. ancestors have experienced that could help us with this? And I guess the third thing I think of is that it's, as one gets older, one becomes, feels at times less significant in the world because you're not the bright, shiny thing you once were, and there's these other people. And I think cultivating a sense of gratitude for for your life and your work and accepting where you are in life as opposed to where you wish you were or where you once Mm. were. And I don't know if it's because I'm a Quaker and we spend a lot of time sitting around and quiet, but (laughs) that definitely helps me to just put things into perspective about, Mm -hmm. you know, what is my role in the world here? And so that I take it seriously, but I don't take it too seriously. We live in a really difficult time with social media where there is all this incentive to get likes and retweets and shares and all that. And it, it can give one a warped perspective of, of what is valuable and what's good mm-hmm. work. And I think sometimes social media is trying to push us to do certain things, to produce certain content. And that content typically is the content that that promotes the most reaction 
uh, and even violence. And how do we get off of that treadmill? Another thing I want to loop back to is you use this term trap to just to describe what it's like to become involved in an activist space or creating content. Because I, I do think a lot of times those two things are intermingled now. So much of activism involves putting something out online to see if it finds any sort of purchase in, in whatever culture you're speaking to. But at the same time, even within the five years I've been doing this show, there's the cycle in which like communities and cultures and followings can arise and fall. Like it's really accelerated and it can be really easy to wrap up your identity in that. So could you speak to how you've navigated that being wary of that trap and also doing it in a way that you have been able to maintain your curiosity. One of the things that can happen is that we can, in order to survive, in order to not re-traumatize ourselves online or elsewhere, sometimes there there does require for a period of time, like cutting yourself off, so to speak, from something. I appreciate the way you're saying now that to both avoid the trap, that trap of staying in a place, but also being curious about the places other people are going. Yeah, it's funny these days here in South Africa, I actually took to TikTok because I was just curious about TikTok. It was such a, mm-hmm. a comfort to me during the worst part of the pandemic because you've had, you had people, a lot of gays and other people doing really funny, creative stuff. But it was in these mm-hmm. short bursts because that's about all the attention span I had in the middle of the pandemic. So it was like, <laughs> yeah. So then I got curious, like, how does it work? Like, how do you create content that is meaningful to people? And it, it just fell flat in America. But as soon as I came to South Africa, I began to just start talking about the experience here because I was very curious and I still am learning new languages about new foods. And this whole thing exploded with like tons of followers and interactions with people. And it reminded me of the early days in 2003, 2004, when blogging was still really new. Uh, Live Mm. journal, uh, WordPress, these were very new formats. And as a result, there was a lot of exchange going on. There was a lot happening in the comments section that was not yelling and screaming. It was people connecting with each other giving each other advice, Mm. suggestions, book suggestions. And that's my experience on TikTok these days with what I'm doing on TikTok. It's almost all positive responses. And it's people saying, have you tried this food? Have you tried that food? And I think that's one of the keys is all of these formats, if if you're not building relationships through them, then I don't feel they're actually giving life. If it's just a Mm. one-sided, here I'm pouring out all my stuff, my content, and there's no interaction, then I feel that it can really become draining. And for me, back in the days when I would meet people online, it was so thrilling to then meet them for coffee, to figure out, like, we're in the same city all of a sudden, let's get together. And some of my closest friends today are people I met through those comments, And I think that's still possible. It requires, again, curiosity, connecting. Obviously, you can't have relationships with everyone. But when there is that connection to build on it. So I think that's a really 
that's something that's still very possible because I'm seeing that it's still very possible. But at the heart of all good activism is healthy relationships. And that includes a healthy relationship with yourself. And that means, of Mm -hmm. course, things that we talk about all the time, self-care. And for me, one of the things I do for self-care is I, on Sundays, I try to stay offline, like like actually screen-free for the whole day. Which is miser- mm-hmm. miserable at times because <laughs> it, we get so used to this and we're so used to it that I think we have forgotten how painful boredom can feel. <laughs> yeah. I don't like when yeah. I, maybe you remember from when you were a kid, like sometimes you would feel so bored, like it felt like you were going to die. Yeah. And the problem with the internet is we're still bored, but we're like distracted enough that we don't feel the full weight of that boredom. <laughs> yeah. And so shutting it off will mean you're going to feel like crap. It's going to feel so <laughs> horrible. You're going to think you're going to die. And then all of a sudden, a weird idea will pop into your head. Huh. I don't think I've ever made apple crumble before. And then you're like, I don't know how to make apple crumble. And I'm not going to look online. Let me call my sister. She might know. And the next thing you know, you're having this amazing time making apple crumble. And this crumble you would not have made otherwise if you were online. But that's a very <laughs> yeah. that's a really helpful thing for me to do to take that day off from being online. But really, I go back to this, what I said earlier. The most important thing, it's about healthy relationships, and I think that's the mm. gauge of the activism. If you have relationships that you're getting and you're giving, it's not a one sided thing. We need that as human beings. If we're single or married, we all need these relationships to ground us and to make the work relevant. In your career, you've tackled a lot of difficult topics, things like conversion therapy, climate change, transphobia. You've engaged with them in a lot of different ways through a lot of different mediums, through comedy, through performance, through a number of different podcasts. This isn't a sort of topic or question that I ask everyone, but I am particularly interested in in your response, given the seriousness and the weight of a lot of these things that you've addressed through your work, which is in an environment like today's, where are you finding that curiosity or that hope for that's feeding and and driving your current work? Yeah. (laughs) Let's just leave it there. Yeah. Whenever you do climate work, the hope question comes up a lot. And the reality is I don't always feel hope. Some things at times like looking at the data, looking at human nature. Yeah. It doesn't look hopeful always. And then that's just the reality. And so then I have to say, okay, if I don't feel hope, then what? Then what is other stuff like courage and determination? Because I don't know how things are going to turn out with all the work that we do, but Mm -hmm. I know if we just get blown over by it, and overwhelmed and just shut down, I know how that ends. That's that's not a question to me. I don't know how it ends though, if we engage and if we really seek to find ways forward. I, I don't know how that's going to end and it may end miserably, but even if it does, even if we can't beat it all, what kind of humans do we want to be to the end? That I think is a critical question to ask. And, and I, like I say, I deal with heavy stuff. Climate change is serious. I read all the reports and we have reasons to be very concerned. I don't believe that we, 
I don't believe that we're dead in the water yet. I don't believe that. We can be. We're at a really important crossroads. And I understand why people want to drown themselves out and not have to see all this because it is terrifying. And at the end of the day, I think what it is, we need to not have faith in God, but can we find faith in our fellow human being? Mm. And I think that's the real challenge because right now I think there's a lot of distrust and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of despair. Can humans really do this? And I think it is a test. Can we evolve to this place where our brains aren't even prepared to deal with this crisis? For me, one thing that grounds me is I think, why am I living on the planet today? Like, why couldn't I have been in a different time period? <laughs> but, yeah. but in a way, what a, like, what a privilege to be those people on the planet right now. Like, here mm-hmm. we are. It's ours. It's on us. And I can't solve it all, but I can figure out what my piece is in all of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we have more extreme weather events, as we see people get more and more panicked, what can I do to be a loving, stable presence in the world for somebody, even if not for a lot of people? And yeah, I Everything that can be shaken is being shaken. And COVID showed us that, helped us figure out what's really important in our lives. And we're not done. It's not done with us yet. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes your response makes me think of this old Marshall McLuhan axiom that nothing is inevitable so long as there's a willingness to contemplate what is happening. Sometimes I come back to when, when I'm reminded of it, as you just have now. Thank you so much, Peterson, for joining me on this short little extemporaneous exploration of activism and and hope and answering some of my rambling prompts and everything so wonderfully. I'm always thankful to talk to you about your work past and present. What are some of the projects you're working on right now that you'd like to, to plug here? Uh, thanks for asking that. Yeah, I have been doing a lot of podcasting lately and not just my own, but helping to produce other people's podcasts. So I am the producer of a podcast called the Bible Bash podcast that Liam Hooper, who's a a trans Jewish guy from the South and Don Durham, also from the South, a white cis straight guy. They talk about text, biblical text, and they do a great job of that. So that's the Bible Bash podcast. I'm also the host of Citizens Climate Radio, which looks at climate change from lots of unexpected angles. And also includes a segment called The Art House, where I talk to artists who are doing work around climate change. My own personal playground, audio playground, is called Bubble and Squeak. It's very quirky. It's very weird. The most recent episode is with sexologist Dr. Jalen Ricks, who's an ex-gay survivor and a masturbation expert. <laughs> so we have a great conversation, as you can imagine. Yeah, so there's a lot of, that, a lot of audio out there. But, but I have a question for you if we have time for one quick sure. question. Of course. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for me for something to watch, read, or eat? Oh, man, what a question. So I think a book that you would really enjoy because I'm actually, I'm slowly working through it is, uh, is this philosophical treatise called Technology and the Virtues. And it's a really fascinating um, book by a philosopher of technology. Her name is Shannon Valor. And her argument in the beginning is to look at a number of historical virtue ethics, Aristotelian, Confucian, and Buddhist, and then 
think about them within the context of what she calls uh, the need for the development of techno-moral virtues, which are virtues that speak to a society that is experiencing rapid social uh, change that is accelerated by different technological achievements. It's really fascinating, very considered, and it's really helping me think through not only things regarding things like social media, but also the other sorts of uh, interconnected systems that are so thorny and hard to think through. I'm really enjoying that. I'm a child of the 80s, so as far as watching, there was there was a reboot of He-Man, which was pretty fun to watch on Netflix, which has a really great uh, voice cast. Mark Hamill as Skeletor. What else could you want? And as far as eat, you know, what I would recommend, eat some fresh fruit. I'm trying to eat a little bit healthier myself, and so whatever fresh fruit is available in your area. Have some of that today. (laughs) Yeah, that's dead easy. We've got great fruit here. In fact, a lemon tree in the garden and an avocado tree. It just seems so luxurious to have these, like this fresh stuff I could just go out and pick. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, those are my recommendations for you at this point. Those are Uh, great. I'm going to definitely check out that that book. And and I was a big He-Man fan back in the day. So I'm curious to see. (laughs) I I like this revisiting that's going on. I don't know if you saw the, the kind of reboot of or the revisiting of Karate Kid that was on Netflix. No, I haven't watched that yet. I've heard it's I've heard it's quite good. But yeah, as far as the He-Man, it's actually a continuation of the 80s cartoon <gasps> written or at least led, like the writer's room was led by Kevin Smith. He started as a fanboy type creator. So mm-hmm. it was really interesting, but then it's wild. It's a good, like solid six episodes of TV. Okay. I'm going to do it. I'm going to definitely do it. Thank you so (laughs) much for that. Yeah. You'll have to let me know what you think of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Okay. Peterson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's great. And thanks for doing the show and keeping it going. Yeah. Thank you very much.